Hello and welcome to Euractiv's AgriFood podcast. I'm Paula Andres. I'm Natasha Fett. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here is your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's AgriFood team. This week, a chat with the New Zealand Agriculture Minister and Water Wars in France. And welcome back to another episode of uh, the Euractiv's AgriFood podcast after the special. Mm, the special who spooky Halloween edition. <laughs> yeah, we're actually three in this room. To, no, actually, we are four in the room today. It's true. Uh, because we are here with our new colleague, uh, new agri-food reporter uh, at your active, Paola. Paola, introduce Hello. yourself. <laughs> Hello, I'm Paola. And yeah, I'm happy to have joined the team this week. We're very this happy week, to have you. <laughs> this week, guys, this is the, you know, the swimming pool uh, approach, no? In the deep end, you mean? No, it's just like uh, you basically start, you know, if you want to swim, you just put someone. Uh, uh-huh. Sink or swim? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, okay. And no, it really I, was sink or swim because power has been stuck straight in with a very interesting interview, which we're going to bring you today with... With Damien O'Connor, who's the Agriculture Minister of New Zealand, guys. Mm-hmm. New Zealand. Very yeah. interesting. He's also the co-chair of the OECG Agriculture Ministerial Meeting, which also brings us nicely into how we ended up interviewing him this week. <laughs> Shall I say it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was the this meeting of the OECD, um, the Agriculture, Agriculture Ministerial Meeting. Uh, they were in Paris uh, last week. Uh, for two days, actually, they also um, drafted a final declaration on uh, agriculture, which is actually falling just uh, before the, uh, I mean, this week, uh, there's going to be the COP27 mm-hmm. uh, uh, start, uh, which for the first time going to deal with uh, agriculture too. Yeah, I remember last time writing a brief, uh, a cop out. Yeah, <laughs> and clearly someone read it and <laughs> did that's, something about it because agriculture and in that has to be why. Uh, yes, yeah. Because uh, actually, agriculture has there's a there's a big accent on, put on agriculture this year. And uh, together with Paula, we had this interview with uh, Damien O'Connor, the minister, New Zealand Minister for Agriculture, and we spoke also about this. Uh, but uh, let's uh, dive into this and uh, and uh, let's listen from him directly. We would like to ask you, uh, what points would you highlight from the final declaration uh, released uh, today? I think uh, at a time of international disruption um, and pressure, it's wonderful to have a declaration um, uh, supported by all participants at the OECD forum. And I think that's uh, it's an indication perhaps of our determination um, to show unity uh, in the face of, of conflict in here in, in Europe um, and the challenges of climate change and, and food security. So uh, it, it was a really great outcome um, at, at a critical time. If you can also further elaborate a bit on the aspect of food security, because you mentioned uh, there's also the current situation in Ukraine. Uh, so uh, what's your take on the, on the current risk for global food insecurity? I mean, clearly we're facing a lot of pressure and uh, climate change is also impacting adversely on many um, food producers, farmers and 
uh, in different countries, um, in some cases, uh, occasionally raising the yields um, because of better climate, climatic conditions, but more often than not, um, destroying crops and the livelihoods of many farmers. So, so that's an ongoing challenge that we are trying to address through emissions reductions and, and our initiatives in that area. Uh, in the short term, making sure that there are no unnecessary trade barriers to the movement of food um, to address the, the uh, shortages uh, created by the conflict in the Ukraine. Um, and so all of these things were referred to um, in discussions at the forum. And obviously the declaration, uh, you know, states a, a determination to, to get on and, and help one another through collaboration and cooperation to, to address both of those, those two um, major uh, international challenges. Yeah, moving on to COP. Uh, so this will be the first COP uh, actually addressing food systems and agriculture. Uh, we would like to know what are your expectations on the outcome of this event? I mean, clearly from the, this forum, the OECD one, there was a determination to remind uh, participants at COP that uh, food security um, is, is first and foremost a humanitarian issue that must be addressed and uh, to ensure that people are fed um, is important when it comes to enabling them to address the issues of of emissions reduction and giving them the tools to do that. So um, while it's not a direct trade-off one against the other, we have to ensure people are fed every single day and then um, through technology um, and the sharing of information, we can reduce the emissions Profile of that food production, which which will you know play into the the, the targets um, of of COP and um, our international NDCs. And I will also briefly make a reference to the uh, recently uh, deal, the recent deal between the EU and the, and New Zealand when it comes to the uh, you know the, the fruit trade uh, uh, agreement that they uh, struck recently in July. Uh, there's an interesting uh, um, innovation in this deal, which is a sustainable food system chapter. And I'd like to know if uh, this could be a role model. Also, there's also some very innovative uh, uh, features when it comes to animal welfare condition. So uh, what could be, uh, if this could be considered a best practice even at the uh, global level? Look, I, I think the, uh, you know, the greatest value of the trade agreement between um, the EU and New Zealand was the standards that we have set um, across many areas of um, government procurement, environmental goods and services transfer, uh, animal welfare, reference to animal welfare standards, labour standards, um, all of these things mean that um, we see the, the value of setting an example for the rest of the world when it comes to trade. And uh, in terms of um, food and goods, um, you know, there were some, it was, they, they were the challenging areas for us, particularly around dairy um, and beef, um, but but we committed uh, to the highest standards um, of food production that we hope will flow on to other uh, trade agreements and other, other countries' practice. 
As you know, might know, the EU has been uh, criticized for the huge amount of farming subsidies that uh, end up uh, in the pockets of big farmers and, and are also potentially harmful to the environment. So what what is your opinion on that? I mean, we in New Zealand, we have no subsidies um, and we appreciate that other countries um, have different forms of food production and agriculture. So while we will always advocate for reform of agricultural subsidies that contribute to um, uh, inefficient production, the wasteful emissions, um, and, and distorted market prices and signals, um, we, we, we understand that uh, countries are taking their own approach to this, but are increasingly aware that um, harmful agricultural subsidies are detrimental to, to the global environment. And uh, the WTO is leading the charge to try and get reform in this area. It is slow, um, but New Zealand actually has, has been pushing for this for, uh, for, for a couple of decades. And a very last question on uh, the role of innovation and technology. Uh, it was also uh, present in the final declaration. So I just want to know uh, some uh, from you some good, uh, again, good practices when it comes to innovation uh, in terms of coping with uh, uh, either the food security risk but also climate change. One of the things that was acknowledged was the importance of people um, attracting them to and, and retaining them in our food production systems and uh, giving them the skills to use the technology as we go forward is just as important. Um, so then the, the infrastructure required, such as broadband, uh, access to capital to purchase um, the, the technology, all of these things are part of the challenges that we collectively acknowledged and committed to help one another with um, in a collaborative way. Um, World Bank being there, um, you know, ensuring that consideration of capital flows and capital availability uh, is just as important as, um, you know, supporting young people and, and rewarding them um, uh, in, in the food production systems and agriculture. Thanks so much for uh, your time and uh, for this interview. So today we have with us a very special guest. We have Hugo with us. Hugo, maybe you could just introduce yourself quickly. Hello. Hello. Nice to, <laughs> nice to join you. <laughs> I'm from nice uh, Agri, Agri Food Hub uh, and working from Paris. Exactly. Hugo is our agri reporter in France. And the reason we have you on the podcast this week is because there's been some interesting goings on in France this weekend or this well, It's been a, it's been a long story. Yes. So Hugo, maybe what's, what's going on over in France? Yes, this is a very sensitive story. Uh, last Saturday, October 29th, uh, 1,500 activists marched in a field in Deux Sèvres, a region in western France, not far from La Rochelle, it's a big mm -hmm. city. Um, there were uh, farmers' unions, environmental activists, left-wing politics, there to prevent the installation of 16 basin, mean huge water reserves like artificial swimming pools for irrigation. According mm. to the farmers, these reserves are useful for accessing water in time of drought. 
Okay. And these water reserves, uh, can you explain a little bit more about them? You know, that, why are they so controversial? Yes, because these pools are not simply water reservoirs like dams. Uh, these pools pump water from uh, the groundwater. So farmers um, involved in uh, the project say that water will be drawn in winter when groundwater overflows in order to, to, to make reserves for the summer. But according to the activists, uh, this system will reduce the level of groundwater. There are other problems. Uh, These pools are open air reserves, so the water will uh, evaporate. Uh, there is also a privatization of water by farmers. But above all, uh, these reserves encourage a productive agriculture, very greedy in water like uh, the culture of maize. And for the activists, the public money, because um, 70, around 70% um, paid with public funds, uh, must be used to accelerate uh, the agroecological transition. On the other side, for the farmers, um, it's very necessary to, to give access to water to, to help food production, especially in this uh, current context. And back to the manifestation. There were many people who have been hurt, um, police officers and activists, the government and FNSUA, the, the, the main uh, um, trade union, the main agri-union support the project uh, and the police. A minister even called uh, the activists eco-terrorists. Eco -terrorists. Uh, so the atmosphere is very dense. <laughs> Yeah, very tense. I mean, we're also coming off of a year, you know, that, that's had severe droughts. So you can really see how how the tension would, would rise both on the farming side and also, you know, environmentally speaking. And the so as I understand it, the the activists are, are blaming France for not respecting European law. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, uh, that's uh, what they say in a petition to the Petit Commission in the European Parliament. Uh, this summer, the Parliament and even the European Commission uh, recognized that France has not complied with nine European water directives. For several reasons, uh, the installations are made in a protected area. There were not enough impact studies, etc. So the activists are now calling a parliamentary investigation, is the next step. Um, but on a national scale, however, the project is allowed by law. Mm. And I suppose this, you know, this this fight over access to water and storage of water, it's going to be a problem that's going to get worse and worse, you know, with droughts, with climate change. And it's not just um, confined to France. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about this kind of the same similar situations elsewhere. How's it going kind of outside of France? Italy, Portugal, but also Spain are very advanced in irrigation. The defenders of these reserves point out that France irrigates only 10% of the surface area, um, and it's 26% in Italy and 50% in Spain. However, some studies 
have shown that Spain uh, suffered more intense uh, drought uh, since countries starts drawing water from groundwater. And today, um, some groundwater are dry in Spain. It's um, a big problem. Um, yesterday, I had a, a conversation with an irrigation specialist um, who is very pro-irrigation. Uh, and he told me that uh, Spain had perhaps gone too far. But um, for him, uh, France is far from Spain, uh, he said. Uh, we have to, to find a balance. Today, the, the construction is off uh, because of the manifestation uh, for the moment, <laughs> because um, there is three basins, uh, three basins have been built, but 16 more are planned for uh, 2026. Um, so the story has only just begun. Just the beginning. Okay, yes. so uh, yes. Hugo will be following this. There's a couple of stories. If you want to learn more about this, you can check out Hugo stories on your active France. They'll also be translated yes. on your into English. So do check those out. Thank you very much, Hugo, for your time. Thank you too. So that's all from us this week. And this week, the Euractive Agri-Food podcast was brought to you by Euractive's Agri-Food team. That's Gerardo Fortuna, Paula Andres, and Natasha Foote with the technical support of Evi Hiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, and Spotify. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.